from runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell and Greg Hughes. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 249 with guest Stephen Foskett, recorded Tuesday, January 17th, 2012. Run As Radio is produced each week by Quaff Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow the boys on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell, and you're listening to Run As Radio. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, with me today is uh, Stephen Foskett. We've had him on the show before. He is an active participant in the world of enterprise information technology, currently focusing on enterprise storage, server virtualization, and cloud computing. He is responsible for Gestalt IT, a community of independent IT thought leaders, and organizes the popular Tech Field Day events. A longtime voice in the storage industry, Stephen has authored numerous articles for industry publications and is a popular presenter at industry events. His contributions to the enterprise IT community have earned him recognition both as a Microsoft MVP and VMware V expert, and he can be found online at gestaltit.com, foskets.net, and on Twitter at at sfosket. Welcome, sir. Hello, welcome. It's nice to be back. Yeah, great to have you. And uh, just saw your latest blog post about uh, taking Dell seriously as a storage vendor, too. Exactly. You know, not the topic I want to get into today, but a huge topic. You've generally done a lot in the data space. Yeah, I mean, that's that's really my my heart and home is, is all data storage, you know, mm-hmm. and it's especially enterprise storage, you know. Yeah, and it's a huge business and topic unto itself. Certainly, it's still a challenging set of problems. But I'm fascinated about your thoughts around how we build data centers differently with virtualized servers. Is it actually necessary? Well, I think that that's one of the things that uh, people are starting to realize. Hmm. And it's really interesting. Uh, I do these seminars where I'll go out and talk about what sort of infrastructure you need for server virtualization. And it's occurring to me more and more that there are kind of two camps here in the virtualization space. There's people who want to have a, a sort of a new infrastructure, right? a new kind of thing, and then there's people who want to build on to what they've always done. And, um, you know, it's really interesting to see the different architectural choices that they'll make in the data center based on whether they want to preserve an investment in storage and servers, or whether they want to try something totally new and radical. So, and is this more because we're just in the migration period? I mean, a few years ago when virtualization first got hot, it was all about reducing the size of your data center, that you were turning off these older servers because you were rolling, they were P to Ving them into these bigger machines, and, you know, whole racks were going quiet. Well, that was kind of a low-hanging fruit, wasn't it? That right. you could uh, That you could attack uh, all these old, you know, NT4 machines and mm-hmm. things like that. I mean, I, I've I've been to environments where they literally have been able, as you say, to turn off a whole rack of servers and just virtualize them all on one, you know, at, at most blade chassis. So that's very very powerful. But I think that that was just the the first toe dipped into the power of virtualization. And I think that what's happening now is people are starting to realize that that in a virtualization, just to save money, is not a good enough argument to virtualize. Right. So we're seeing a little bit of retrenchment 
a little bit of second thoughts about, wait, do I really want to make this big investment in VMware or in Microsoft or Citrix or somebody? And the ones that are going forward with server virtualization are the ones that say, you know, this is a strategic value to the data center beyond just consolidation, beyond just, you know, turning off old servers. This is a value in terms of disaster recovery and, um, you know, speed to provision servers and all these other things that are extremely difficult in a physical world. Sure. Well, you get into more of that cloud-like feel of, I don't really care where this VM runs. It's any number of these machines. It can move in real time with no downtime. We can spin up new instances in seconds and rejigger the load balancing to cover it. Like That feels to me more cloud-like now than than just virtualization. Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, it's, Unfortunate that when people, you know, some people talk about cloud, they're talking about a radical new thing where you have a new platform to run your data center application on. And when other people talk about cloud, they're talking about a fully virtualized and quickly provisionable environment the way that you're describing it. Um, you know, I'm not sure that cloud is the right word for it, but right. whatever the word is, it's extremely powerful and compelling to be able to literally load balance all of your running servers and your storage across an infrastructure. And that's really radical. And and it's really exciting to see that happening. Well, I, I like this concept of automated elasticity, that I have some measure to show this set of servers is currently heavily loaded. I want to recruit a few more servers in to reduce the load. And then as the load lightens up, spin off the release those server instances back down again. Yeah, it's a little hard to do that right now, practically mm-hmm. uh, speaking. You know, because of course, you know, if you're in the data center, you you kind of had to buy those and put them somewhere. Yeah. And if you're able to, what they call cloud bursting, you know, I think that's maybe next year's topic um, in terms of it be a practical thing that people do. Whereas, you know, this year, I think that people are just thrilled to be able to make reasonable use of the hardware that they've bought in their data centers. Well, and you're poking at the truth, which is that most of our servers are laying around doing very little. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I wonder if we can't get into this game of balancing where I know my workloads are different during the day versus during the evening, right? That the, you know, we're going to recompute OLAP cubes at night. Uh, but during the day, we don't compute those OLAP cubes, so we don't need all those computing resources there. But maybe, you know, our mail services are much busier during the day, so I can change allocations around to keep the mail running fast during the day when it's busy and throttle that back at night when it isn't, and then uh, take those resources and allocate them out to cube computation at night. Well, that would be really, really cool. And, you know, I'm told, actually, that that's the reason, the real reason that Amazon came up with the whole EC2 infrastructure is because of that exact need that they found that there was different workloads at different times of day. And so they came up with a a way to orchestrate moving virtual machines so that they could balance the workload and Mm. do different types of workload at different times for different regions and things like that. And, you know, so in that way, Amazon is showing us what the corporations are going to be doing with their infrastructure soon, you know? Sometime in the future. I mean, at the same time, you have sort of, I hate to even use this term already in 2012, traditional cloud, where I don't own the machines. And, you know, people have pushed their mail off. They don't want to own any of it. They just want to have the service work. Really going to take off is things like mail and, um, you know, sharing of documents and things like that. You know, why do we even want to do that? 
you know, why don't we just let a service provider do that? I right. mean, I know I don't. You know, for my business, I, I have no servers because I don't need servers. I don't want servers. Mm-hmm. And I love it when the IT guy says he has no servers. That just, you know, gives me a thrill. The guy most skilled and most capable to own servers. Nah, I wouldn't do that. Are you kidding me? That's for fools. Yeah. Well, it's, and, and, you know, I mean, some people have applications that they need servers and that's great. Mm-hmm. You know, build a virtual infrastructure, you know, build an infrastructure that lets you do this kind of load balancing and things like that. Um, you know, don't, don't, you know, buy a piece of iron and bolt it to a rack and hope for the best. Sure. So let's, uh, I want to jump back a little bit because we, we were talking earlier on here about the differences between, you know, your current infrastructure and a purely virtualist infrastructure. And uh, does this really fall into the storage area? Like the way that you connect to your storage when you're talking bare metal versus virtualization is different? Well, that's a great point. And, um, you know, I guess on the face of it, you'd say no, because frankly, you know, the hypervisor just becomes the client for the storage. Right. So if you've got a fan or if you're using NAS, whatever, you know, the hypervisor is consistent. He's accessing your fiber channel fan or your ISCS or whatever. And the storage doesn't need to know that anything new is happening. Yeah. But the problem is that once you actually start doing this, it really screws up traditional assumptions that the storage environment is making, whether it's the SAN or the array. And so, for example, one of my big hobby horses is mobility. So what happens when I vMotion a machine outside a cluster that can see a certain fiber channel LUN? Well, it doesn't work, for one thing. Right. Um, <laughs> so I have to basically represent that LUN to a new hypervisor, and then it'll start working again. But you know, what happens when I'm starting to do this in an automated fashion or what happens when I start going really far and I start moving a virtual machine from data center to data center? Yeah. That's very difficult. When we start having to think beyond the virtual machine and into that whole service, the data is part of this package and how does it all move? Yeah, there's really two things to think about when you're moving stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. there's there's the, the virtual machine instance and then there's the virtual machine image. Right. And I actually wrote about this on my blog yesterday, I think. Um but the idea is that you've got, you know, the, the server instance that can move around, and then you've got the virtual machine data that can move around. Mm-hmm. And so VMware and Microsoft and others are reflecting this by having things like vMotion for the virtual machine instance and then storage vMotion for the virtual machine storage. Right. And similarly, Microsoft has live migration and storage live migration. And we are starting to see companies coming up with products that address just the storage side of the equation. Um, you know, probably one of the ones that's gotten so much attention lately is Zerto with their, you know, ability to move data around. And I've been talking to a number of others. I talked to Versto yesterday, who's also looking at this. So there are a lot of companies out there that are trying to address the storage side of the equation. Because right now, when I think about storage mobility, I think about stuff like replication and mirroring between data centers and essentially doing a failover to move that virtual image over to the other data center and switch to the other data set. This section of Run As Radio is sponsored by Secret Server, the password management software for IT admins. Secret Server helps you manage local admin passwords and service accounts the right way. Get your free 30-day trial for Secret Server at runasradio.com slash secret server. Now, I guess the real thought is, why are we moving between data centers? I mean, I normally consider that purely a disaster recovery strategy, but would you actually get to a point where you think that's a a normal load balancing kind of strategy? I think that's really, that should be the goal for any company big enough to have multiple data centers. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, one of the most exciting environments I ever saw was a, you know, a major um, retail company that literally had multiple data centers up and running all the time. Mm -hmm. And what they did is instead of having a disaster recovery plan, they had a regular movement of business plan. Basically, they were continually moving workload from data center to data center. And so that they didn't need to worry about disaster recovery because if a disaster happened, well, we do that every day anyway. Right. So it's no big deal. I, I worked with a group of companies in the Caribbean that uh, they always have hurricanes. And so we got into routine monthly data center flopping was what we called it. So that everybody knew how to move uh, the workload between the two different data centers in two different hurricane corridors because you were going to do it a couple of times a year anyway. So if you did it every month, it was everybody knew how to do it. It was just not a big deal. Yeah, and they call it disaster avoidance in that in that yeah. scenario. And I think that that's that's way better than disaster recovery. Let me tell you, disaster avoidance. You know, you don't worry about so much about downtime because you're not going to have it. Yeah, and, it, and that's the goal, right? Is literally is close to zero. I think we got under a minute of downtime during a flop, but you know, the actual zero. I think it's almost a mythical number. Yeah. Well, and and see that that's the thing is that there once you get near zero, there are so many other problems that are going to crop up. Yeah. You know, internet outages or or you know labor strikes or whatever that you know you just you don't really have to worry about zero so much as worrying about you know near zero. Yeah. Are we close enough that this is not an impediment to work? What is the cost of a under five minute outage? Like you, you literally don't even miss your train of thought. Like I think we started talking about, you know, do you need to go for coffee or not? Are we short enough that you don't even leave your desk or are we long enough that you go get a coffee, come back and you're back to work? <laughs> but that's a good number to be at. I, we were pretty happy there. And this is a few years ago now. I mean, well, before cloud was really a, a, a concept. We were pretty reliable at that point. But the main thing was just getting away from DR as a panic and into something yeah. that everybody knew how to do. Yeah, because panicking about DR is the surest way to have, well, a, a, a bad experience. Yeah, almost guaranteed. And, and let's face it, the first few times you do any of these things, they don't go well. No. You know, no. you it's one of those things that needs to be practiced and, and you find all the little glitches and the mistakes. And every time we updated the software, it needed a full set of failover testing again, because programmers make mistakes and, and stuff isn't picked up that needs to be modified when you change sites. Like there's just rules around all of this. But I'm, I'm just fascinated at the prospect of say, uh, uh, following the sun. You know, that having a workload that runs in Europe during prime time in Europe, and then you move that workload into the U.S. when it's U.S. prime time, just so that it always stays as close to the to the workers as possible, maximum performance. That, to me, sounds pretty wacky. I don't know if I'm there yet. <laughs> no, I think that, unfortunately, it, it gets difficult because of <clears throat> long distance, you know, replication is difficult because of just the speed of things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and actually, it's funny, we've... We've improved WAN links so incredibly lately that, um, you know, the, the, the latency of WAN links has dropped dramatically, um, you know, 50%, 75% in the last decade. And that means that the effective range of replication has increased, you know, the, the same amount. So where we used to be worried about 100 kilometers, now we can 200, 300 kilometers without, you know, incurring, without having to worry about, um, you know, switching to some other replication strategy. Mm -hmm. so. Well, and yeah, I don't, 
replication strategies as a whole, and I know I don't favor any of them. I've used all of them. Are all only just good enough? Like I, I think we need a better way in general. And that's uh, one of the reasons I'm really interested in this idea of more of the the data motion approach. This is not about disaster recovery. This is not about backup. This is routine movement of data. Yeah, and you know, there's to shift gears a little bit too. There's a, there's a lot of interest now in um, in basically where does your data live? And mm-hmm. I've seen some really clever ideas where basically all data is replicated to the cloud, you know, and literally a cloud provider like Amazon or somebody. And then um, it is from there, pr- you know, propagated out to multiple data centers. And right. so your data always lives in the cloud and locally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was talking to Nasuni and they have a new system that does something like this. And it was really, really cool to imagine what that means for a distributed organization to have your data live here and there and in the cloud. Yeah. But of course, that's exactly what I have with my iTunes collection. You know, I've got iTunes Match running now. So I've got, you know, all my songs on my laptop and my desktop and wherever Apple puts them and on my iPhone. And it's, 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 it's really awesome. Well, you know, I, I use Evernote the same way. Right. Yeah. It's in my phone. It's in my two different laptops and a couple of different desktops. And my wife synced to it as well. And, yep. and we, and we know there's a copy maintained up in the cloud somewhere. And we've, we're, I'm at the point where I just expect it. Exactly. Exactly. And Dropbox. You know. And they, they, you know, the risk of losing that data is virtually zero. There are so many copies all the time. Yeah. And as long as they've got good security controls that you trust, um, you know, it's not a worry. You know, right. it, so I use Dropbox for all of my um, my laptop uh, and desktop data, and I use it to synchronize to the cloud. When I bought a new computer, I literally, in the Apple Store, opened it up. The first thing I did was install the Dropbox client, and it starts pulling down all my data. Right. And, you know, before I even walked out of the store with my new MacBook, I had a set of my data that I could work with. I just don't feel like we're there with the enterprise yet, that thinking this way. It's interesting that this works so well for consumers to the point where we would not work any other way, that now we want our enterprise to simply have this mindset. And I love the idea that we're keeping always keeping data sets local, that you're not working from the cloud at all. The cloud is your backup and synchronization strategy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, certainly you can work from the cloud in some cases, but Mm -hmm. I think in most cases you're... Honestly, the cloud is is your your occasional data set, and whatever your local set is your working set. That's right. what you're, you're you're currently using. But it also means we're we're going to have to deal with inaccuracies. I mean, if I start thinking from an enterprise perspective, it's something like an inventory list that lives in multiple locations like that. I'm going to have to deal with back orders once in a while. You have to architect your application to accept it, and then you know. You know, look at the web applications, Google and Facebook. I mean, it, they're eventually consistent, but they're not, you know, transactionally consistent no. in a traditional way. And and it's funny how, you know, adding a back order system makes eventual consistency acceptable. Yeah. Like, that's just a procedural element. I mean, uh, uh, when I do talks on these kinds of things, I bring up Expedia as an example. You know, 99% of the time, when you pick a ticket, you just get that ticket. It's But it's all cashed. It's all local. And once in a while, you're going to pick a ticket that's already been sold. And it's going to say, guess what? You get to have that ticket. It just costs more. Yeah. Or or something else, some other... Yeah. Uh... Or some other way. But the reality is that, you know, occasional consistency benefits performance for almost every case for the occasional disappointed customer. 
And tolerating occasional inconsistency is really the only way to answer what we were talking about before, the replication problem. Mm -hmm. Because basically you just, it's physically impossible right now to have fully consistent everything, everywhere, all the time. That's just not going to happen. That's not how it works. You can either centralize it or you can tolerate inconsistency. Right. And and we, as the IT folks, sort of have to present this reality to management to say, you know, we can do it synchronously as long as you want everybody to suffer every day for it. Or we can deal with the occasional problem and everybody performs better. Sort of a dark note, but, you know, certainly the way I think about that problem. I guess the other question here is, like you've done already, is ultimately our enterprise is just going to move to, I don't want to own this stuff anymore, that more and more of it's going to live in the cloud. I think they will with with big exceptions. I think that as consistent applications appear that like email and, you know, document sharing and so on that just work well, um, they're going to go in the cloud. Mm-hmm. But I think that uh, companies are going to, for the long, long time, you know, they're going to keep other applications, maybe their core assets, local. And that's good because, frankly, unless you're an email provider, why are you managing email for a living? Right. You know, you should be doing something that's that's productive. And, you know, I, I think that what we're going to see is more and more companies you know, focusing on what it is that they do. You know, I'm an insurance company. I'm going to focus on insurance, not on email management. Right. Instead of, you know, trying to be all things to all people. Well, it's the same reason you don't generate your own electricity or, or you know, process your own water. Hey, I, I process my own water and generate my own. No. <laughs> no, actually, I, that's actually another area that I'm interested in is all that, you know, alternative energy. And, uh, you know, I've been writing about that on my blog, too. So so we'll see. Maybe I'll get there. Yeah, sure. Well, and it's interesting to see the impact that data centers, uh, virtualization on data centers you know, I'm dealing with companies where they have empty racks because they can't get enough electricity anymore. The densification of servers, yeah. uh, you know, has really messed up provisioning. Yeah, the only data center I've been to that, that can actually handle a fully loaded rack with modern equipment is the SwitchNap in Las Vegas. Hmm. And that's because they have just insane power distribution in that data center. Right. If you ever go to Las Vegas, just, just talk to the Switch people and they'll give you a tour. I mean, it's just the most amazing data center you've ever seen. Yeah, and then these exact, you know, interesting challenges is the, you know, they put data centers in downtown offices, but then you can't get enough power. So you put yep. them out in the wilderness and that introduces another set of problems. Like it's really, <laughs> we're in a funny place to deal with all of this. Absolutely. Steve, any particular resources you point to around, uh, looking at the differences in architecture for virtualization? Like how you, what do you prefer? Do you rather go the sand route? Is direct attached storage just a mistake now? Well, I, I think it is, um, especially in a virtual environment. Direct attached storage is a major mistake because you just can't do the awesome stuff. You can't do, you know, DRS. You can't do all these really, really cool things. I mean, you have to have a SAN. I think a better question is, or network storage generally, the better question is do you need fiber channel or do you need iSCSI or do you need NFS? And yeah. there, I think it's, it's whatever you're comfortable with. But I'll tell you, NFS is gaining traction like crazy. Is it poaching? I mean, I've, I tend towards iSCSI just because it's switchable, you know, the same way that that networking is. But uh, and it, yeah, and and that's and that's true. Both iSCSI and NFS, because they're at layer three, um, they benefit from a lot of the advancements in networking. Whereas fiber channel and fiber channel over Ethernet, you know, I mean, fiber channel's not even in the iSCSI model. But if it was, you know, I mean, they're kind of a layer two, you know 
they, they require so much nuts and bolts, low level services. Yeah. But it, frankly, even though there's, there are ways to make a dynamic fiber channel SAN, it's more difficult, in my opinion, than it is to make a dynamic iSCSI or NFS network. Fiber channel was not built for this. Fiber channel was built to create redundant clusters of machines with redundant storage. But you know, there were a known set of machines with a known set of storage devices, typically for specific applications. Yeah, and, and, and see, that's, and that's why Fiber Channel works so well for a single virtualization cluster. Right. But you start having a data center full of them, and once you start trying to do replication, you need to start bringing in additional products and additional you know, technologies to try to overcome the fact that Fiber Channel is fundamentally a right-here, right-now protocol. And IP like iSCSI and NFS, yeah. is fundamentally a network approach to things and much more tolerant to that. So if we're talking Greenfield, and let's face it, we almost never are. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Except in virtual desktop. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, most virtually every bit of fiber channel I'm seeing these days is legacy, right? It's stuff we've got before we were working on this new architecture. And you're not going to waste it. It's expensive and it works. Yeah, I heard a guy say the other day that Fiber channel is like smoking. Basically, you wouldn't start it now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but if you're doing it, it's hard to quit. But I think that's exactly the point, right? Is really, uh, given that you, if you're going to, if you get a chance to build fresh now, you'd go NFS for your storage. I would. That's, that's your choice. You can... Yeah. Just because of what I've seen from some, some great, great products out there and how easy it is as an administrator. I mean, frankly, NFS takes away a lot of the storage administration that I'm used to. And so as a storage guy, I kind of shed a tear, but frankly, not so much. Right. It works great. Use it. And for folks who don't know a lot about NFS, uh, you want to give us a quick recap? Sure. Um, basically, you know, NFS is basically a file system redirector. So it sits where the files and the directories live in sort of the conceptual stack of your computer. Mm -hmm. So instead of being a fake disk drive, which is basically iSCSI or Fiber Channel or something, which just gives you raw disk space. NFS is much more, it's a higher level protocol, and it allows you to create files and directories that are shared over the network. And it is, it's uncommon to Windows people. I think that's one reason that it took a little while for VMware administrators to kind of adapt to this idea of using NFS, right? because it's just so unfamiliar. But once they see it, they see, ooh, this is kind of cool. So for example, in VMware, um, if you're using NFS, it basically your VMDK files are actual files. And instead of having a clustered file system that is managed by the hypervisor, you've got an NFS server that is serving files. And that's what it does. And it does it real well. Yeah, and and so, for example, and provisioning is just in there. And, you know, it just sort of works. And, and, it, and it really kind of looks nice in the interface, too. That's the thing that I like the best about it is that, you know, a VMDK file is a file. Uh, I mean, the other thing about NFS is this was originally a Sun technology that got handed over to the IETF, right? It's, it's now it's like a totally open protocol. Oh, absolutely. In fact, it's probably too open. I'm, I'm not all that enthusiastic about what they're doing with NFS 4.1 and parallel NFS. Um, everybody's got their thumb in that pie trying yeah. to make it everything mm -hmm. they want it. And the usual thing that happens with these IETF specs is each vendor's going to do their implementation of it, and you have to pick and choose pretty carefully. Yeah. So, I mean, as far as it goes in the data center, I mean, we're still, everybody's using NFS version 3. Um, version 4 has some really interesting features, but frankly, we don't have to worry about that for a long, long time because, 
we've kind of gotten to the point where the V3 stuff works fine. Yeah, well, V3 is all TCP. It, I mean, there's some features you'd like, but it's reliable and it's big enough and, you know, it's safe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, Steve, what's next for you? Where can we find you? All right. Well, actually, I'm really going to be easy to find this year because I'm going to be doing seminars on, surprise, surprise, building storage and infrastructure for virtualization. Nice. <laughs> so, basically, everything we've been talking about this hour, I'm going to be doing seminars all around the U.S. Um, if you go to blog.foskets.net or just Google Stephen Foskett, um, you'll find, you know, the list of seminar dates. And so I'm going to be all over the U.S. I'm going to be in Canada. I'm going to be going to the U.K. And um, and that's pretty much the world, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, everybody else in the world. Sorry, other, what is that, about 70 or 80% of the population that I'm missing? Yeah, something yeah, like that. Yeah, pretty much. Yes, so I'll be I'll be traveling around. I'm also doing these Tech Field Day events that I that I organize, mm-hmm. um, where you get a bunch of independent bloggers like me in a room with uh, interesting companies and you know just sort of a back and forth discussion. And that's going to be televised um, as well. We're doing we got nine of them planned this year, which is pretty crazy. Wow! And that's at TechFieldDay.com. Great. Well, I'll put the links in the show notes, and folks should check it out. And Stephen, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thanks for inviting me. I'm always uh, glad to be here. And we'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio.